Welcome to Tom Bradford's Torah Class, an in-depth Old Testament Bible study that's brought to you from a Hebrew roots perspective. This week's lesson is week number 13, Nehemiah chapter 9, continued. We are in the midst of examining Nehemiah chapter 9 and this long penitent prayer that forms it. And we're going to be camped here for a while, at least another week. Because these passages bring up so many opportunities for application and as a spiritual measuring stick for our lives. So we're going to look not at just what they say, but what effect this message has upon us as individuals and as members of a community, even of a nation. So I'd like you to open your Bibles to Nehemiah chapter 9, because I want you to follow along with me even during this review we're going to do to start things off. Nehemiah chapter 9. This prayer meeting event of chapter 9 has been commanded at his own discretion by Ezra, the current spiritual leader of Judah. It is happening in the seventh month of the year, Tishri, on the 24th day of the month, only a couple of days after the end of the biblical feast of Sukkot. The wall around the city of Jerusalem has been completed only weeks earlier. Thus, since Ezra had called for an assembly of the people of Judah on the first day of the month, and then because Sukkot that begins on the 15th of the month demands a pilgrimage to the temple, with the addition of this special assembly on the 24th of the same month, the Jews have had a very busy few weeks of doing a little more than learning God's Torah, mainly the law, traveling back and forth to the temple in Jerusalem from their villages and feasting. There has been little, if any, time for them to tend to their fields, orchards, vineyards, flocks, and herds. So there is a great deal of personal and collective sacrifice involved here in order to observe God's commandments and for the people to be obedient to Ezra. Now there are a few important characteristics about this special assembly we need to keep in mind. First, this was not a God-ordained event. It was Ezra's idea. That's not to be taken as a negative. Because as we have always had the freedom to come together and to worship the Lord or to simply offer up prayers and pleas to Him anytime. We don't need special authorization from God or a biblically ordained occasion to do that. Secondly, this prayer assembly was to be one of mourning and repentance. The people were to fast. They were to wear sackcloth, to smear dirt on themselves as customary Jewish signs of grief. Third, all the people were to attend. However, Only natural, hereditary Hebrews were to participate. Those who could identify their genealogy back to Jacob. That is, those with a Gentile heritage, and thus are converts, 
are made Jews by marriage were to be excluded from participating. The reason for this is that these natural born Jews were going to stand before God and accept responsibility not only for their own sins but also for the inequities of their Hebrew ancestors for the several rebellions against the Lord that had occurred time and again over the centuries. Those with Gentile heritage had no ancestral guilt to claim. And fourth, it was the Levite priests along with Ezra who led this prayer assembly. It was they who recited this this long, carefully structured prayer before the crowd. Probably the Levites took turns reading sections of the prayer as opposed to reading it in unison. This prayer had to be uh, had to have been carefully crafted, written down in advance. It was not spontaneous. And further, the crowd would only have listened and then agreed by means of an amen. Well, after a preamble that acknowledges who God is, He is Yehovah, and that it is He who created the heavens, meaning the universe and the earth, verse 7 recounts that it was the Mesopotamian Abraham that God separated away from all other humans on earth to begin a chosen race set apart for himself. God made a covenant with Abraham and the main thrust of it was to give Abraham and his descendants, the Hebrews, a land of their own. But this land was to be more than merely another nation as the world was already full of nations. Rather, this land was to be the location of the kingdom of God on earth. And it would represent the kingdom of God in heaven. Now, of course, since this land was already populated with what are broadly labeled as Canaanites, six named people groups, along with some others, would have to be defeated and expelled. It happened as God promised. And the Hebrews, starting with Jacob, were now known as Israelites. Israel being this new name God gave to the patriarch, Jacob. Well, next in verse 9, the history of the Hebrews continues with their long stint in Egypt. First as welcome guests, later as slave labor. Then came the divine rescue by means of terrible signs and wonders performed against the Pharaoh and against and, and all of his people, Israel was delivered. They began their journey to the land promised to Abraham but found themselves trapped against the deep waters of the Red Sea in front of them and the vengeful Pharaoh and his army from behind. The Lord opened the sea allowing his people to pass to safety on the other side. He then closed up the waters, blocking the path of the Egyptian pursuers, drowning most of them. With their escape complete, now Israel could go and meet God at Mount Sinai, which was was located on the Arabian Peninsula. They were guided there by God himself. As he appeared as the Shekinah, and led them with a column of fire by night, a cloud by day. Now, because the entire book 
of Nehemiah revolves around the need for strong, effective, godly leadership. Recall that what happened in Egypt was all because of bad leadership. It was the government of Egypt that enslaved the Israelites. It wasn't the doing of the common people of Egypt. It was the head of the government of Egypt and his team of yes-men who personally heard and who refused to heed God's warnings to them through Moses that had turned themselves against Israel. It was not the common people of Egypt. It was the supreme leader of Egypt, Pharaoh, whose heart God hardened. The hearts of the common people of Egypt were not hardened. But when God's wrath fell upon Egypt, it fell upon the common people, just as it did upon the leadership. The leadership in some ways actually fared better than the common people because leaders like these always find a way to protect themselves first and foremost above the people they govern. But even Pharaoh's household could not escape the deaths of all firstborn. All this destructive wrath was not because God at some point decided to get angry with Egypt and harm them. Rather, God was but fulfilling a promise. A promise He gave to Abraham that was meant to be an incentive for those who are godly and a threat to those who aren't. In Genesis 12.3, I will bless those who bless you, but I will curse those, uh, curse anyone who curses you, and by you all the families of the earth will be blessed. <clears throat> America, all other countries on this planet, this promise made to Abraham and this warning that accompanies it remains intact and it remains active. That you personally bless Israel and comfort them is full of merit. And you ought to do it because that is being obedient to the Lord. But if you have leadership in your nation that is cursing Israel, that I'm sorry to tell you, you will suffer collateral damage. At that moment or moments that the Lord finally decides to punish your national leadership as He did with Egypt. I can't tell you how many papers and books I've read that has asked everyone to separate the evil leadership of World War II Germany from the actions of the common people. And from an earthly standpoint, this is reasonable. But from a heavenly viewpoint, the Lord doesn't make that distinction when a national judgment arrives. Oh yes, Hitler suffered defeat and he killed himself. Most of Germany's Nazi leaders were caught and rightfully imprisoned or executed. But the country and the common people were devastated. And it took a couple of generations to return to anything that we could call normality. The principle is that the common people will suffer the same earthly fate as their leadership. Now, if you're fortunate enough to live 
in a democracy and you have a say in your leadership, your enlightened self-interest ought to be to select leaders that stand for and with Israel regardless of whatever else they might value. God is not going to judge your nation over taxation. He's not going to punish or bless dependent on whether you adopt socialism or capitalism as your governing and economic philosophy. He's not going to favor nations based on whether or not they have national health care, free public schools, use greener energy, or have little unemployment. And while idolatry will certainly play a role in his national judgment, in our era especially, since Israel's returned as a national entity, God is going to judge nations based almost entirely on how that nation treats Israel and his chosen people. So when you elect a president or a prime minister or any government official, understand, if you're going to be a single issue voter, Israel must be the issue. Because it sure is to God. If you can't do this out of obedience then I urge you to do it out of self-preservation. Let's reread part of this awesome prayer of Nehemiah chapter 9. We are going to start at uh, chapter 9, verse 13, which is on page 1142 if you have a complete Jewish Bible. Nehemiah chapter 9 starting at verse 13 You have descended on Mount Sinai and spoke with them from heaven You gave them right rulings true teachings good laws and mitzvot commandments You revealed to them your holy Shabbat and then you gave them commandments, laws and the Torah through Moshe your servant For their hunger you gave them bread from heaven. For their thirst you brought forth for them water from a rock. You ordered them to enter and possess the land you had sworn with your hand to give to them. But they and our ancestors were arrogant. They stiffened their necks and ignored your commandments. They refused to listen, paid no attention to the wonders you'd done for them. No, they stiffened their necks and in their rebellion appointed a leader to return them to their slavery. But because you are a God of forgiveness, merciful, full of compassion, slow to grow angry, full of grace, you did not abandon them. Even when they cast for themselves a metal calf, saying of it, this is your God that brought you up from Egypt, and committing other gross provocations. Still, you and your great compassion did not abandon them in the desert. The column of cloud did not leave them by day. It kept leading them along the way. By night, the column of fire kept showing them light and the path to take. You also gave your good spirit to teach them. Did not withhold man, manna from their mouths and provided them water to quench their thirst. Yes, 40 years you sustained them in the desert. They lacked nothing. Their clothes did not wear out. Their feet did not swell up. 
You gave them kingdoms and peoples. You gave them extra land so that they took possession of the land of Sichon. Also the land of the king of Heshbon. The land of Og, king of Bashan. You made their children as numerous as countless stars in the sky. Then you brought them into the land about which you had said to their forefathers that they should go in and take possession of it. So the children went in and possessed the land as you subdued ahead of them the Canaanites living in the land and handed them over to them along with their kings and the peoples of the land for them to do with as they wished. They took fortified cities and fertile land. They possessed houses full of all kinds of good things, dug out cisterns, vineyards, olive groves, fruit trees and plenty so that they ate their fill and grew robust, luxuriating in your great goodness. Yet they disobeyed and they rebelled against you, throwing your Torah behind their backs. They killed your prophets for warning them that they should return to you. And they committed other gross provocations. So you handed them over to the power of their adversaries who oppressed them. Yet in the time of their trouble, when they cried out to you, you heard from heaven. And in keeping with your great compassion, you gave them saviors to save them from the power of their adversaries. But as soon as they had gotten some relief, they went back to do evil before you. So you left them in the power of their enemies when they, and who came down hard on them. Yet, when they returned and cried out to you, you heard from heaven many times and saved them according to your compassion. You warned them in order to bring them back to your Torah. Yet they were arrogant. They paid no attention to your commandments. They sinned against your rulings, which if a person does them, he will have life through them. However, they stubbornly turned their shoulders, stiffened their necks, refused to hear. Many years you extended them mercy and warned them by your spirit through your prophets, yet they wouldn't listen. Therefore, you handed them over to the peoples of the lands. And even so, in your great compassion, you didn't completely destroy them, nor did you abandon them. For you are a compassionate, a merciful God. Now therefore, our God, great, mighty, fearsome God, who keeps both covenant and grace... Let not all this suffering seem little to you that has come upon us, our kings, our leaders, our kohanim, our priests, our prophets, our ancestors, and on all your people from the times of the kings of Asher until this very day. There's no question that you are just in all that has come upon us. For you have treated us fairly. It's we who have acted wickedly. Our kings, our leaders, our priests, and ancestors did not keep your Torah. Pay attention to the commandments or heed the warnings you gave them. Even when they ruled their own kingdom. Even when you prospered them greatly and the great rich land you gave them. They didn't serve you. Nor did they turn their back or turn away from their wicked deeds. So, here we are today, slaves. Yes, and the land you gave our ancestors so that they could eat what it produces and enjoy its good. Here we're in it. Slaves. Its rich yield now goes to the kings you set over us because of our sins. They have power over our bodies. They can do what they please to our livestock. And we're in great distress. <clears throat> I hope you noticed an overall pattern. We've seen it before. That pattern is what I called in a lesson in the book of Judges, the cycle of sin. It goes like this in five steps. 
Israel's obedient and serves God. Israel sins, rebels against God and sins. As a consequence, God punishes Israel by allowing national calamity, whereby they are, they are oppressed, they are enslaved, they're exiled to a foreign power. Israel realizes they're wrong. They confess and they repent. They cry out to God. God hears them, shows them mercy, delivers His people from the consequences of their well-deserved punishment. From the, from the broad viewpoint of the book of Nehemiah, step five of the cycle of sin has already happened. As the Lord has delivered the Jews from their Babylonian exile and brought them home, however, they are still under the rulership, albeit reasonable and decent, of a Persian king. So step one in which Israel has returned to obedience and service to God is what we're witnessing. Step one in the cycle. Now what this prayer of penitence that we are reading is doing is taking Israel on a stroll down memory lane and reminding them of how this cycle of sin has repeated over and over again in the past and it does not vary. Israel doesn't skip any steps and neither does God. And these cycles tend to take a long time from start to finish. A couple of centuries at a minimum. And as of the time of this prayer, Israel is progressing back to harmony with God nicely. But it's not out of the woods. They have a degree of freedom that they haven't had in 175 years, but even though they are back in their former homeland of Judah, they still bow their knee to a foreign power, which restricts their ability to fully live out a God-commanded Torah lifestyle. Verse 13 is dealing with that part of the cycle or pattern of sin in which after being delivered from their oppressors, in this case from Egypt, God gives Israel his laws and regulations for living the lifestyle of a redeemed people. This reminds the Jews of their ancestors' experience at Mount Sinai when Moses was leading and God gave to him true teachings. True teachings, meaning justice from the divine viewpoint. By calling these laws true, a right, true, and good, this explains that the character of the Torah reflects the character of the Torah giver, Yehoveh. In Hebrew, the word right is yashar. And here it more literally means straight in the sense of correct or, or upright. The word being translated as true is in Hebrew emet. Emet. It means true, but in the sense of something being, being firm and solid and immovable, as in the term true north. The word translated as good is the familiar Hebrew word tov. Tov. And tov means 
good in the sense of pleasant or something in well-being. This sentence represents the classical biblical description of the Torah in general and of the law that is contained in a section of the Torah. Now, as an aside, since we are regularly given this sort of description of the Torah throughout the Old Testament, and invariably and frequently, we are reminded that to choose the path of Torah is what? Life. To choose any other way is death. Are we to conclude that upon the advent of Christ in the New Testament, that at what, what at one time was truth and good and life is suddenly corrupt and faulty and death? And therefore, the Lord thereby abolished His giant mistake and He replaced it with something new. I mean, do you understand that if we take some of the most foundational, traditional Christian doctrine born from the Roman church and we take it at face value, that is precisely what we're being asked to accept. I am regretful to say that I, perhaps like most of you, first came to Christ believing this. Because that's what I was taught. And I saw little reason to challenge it. But I tell you now without reservation that this fundamental Christian doctrine of a faulty and abolished Old Testament is an error of gargantuan proportions. And it has corrupted and weakened our beloved church terribly. And it is long overdue that God's people, Jew and Gentile, acknowledge this, confess it, repent, and leave those Christian institutions that insist upon following this kind of apostasy. Revelation 18, 4 and 5. Then I heard another voice out of heaven say, My people come out of her, so that you will not share in her sins so that you will not be infected by her plagues. For her sins are a sticky mass piled up to heaven. And God has remembered her crimes. Folks, just as there is a national punishment because it's leadership that curses Israel, regardless of how the common people think of Israel, there is also communal consequence for stubbornly insisting on identifying with a group that you know has gone deeply astray and has rebelled against God's commandments and character. The Lord pleads with His people, come out of her! Because that's your only hope. That's our only hope. Once again, if you can't do that because God commands you to do it, do it out of enlightened self-preservation. You know why a significant number of believers will not run for the exit of an apostate church and never look back? Because they have friends and memories there. 
They have built close relationships over the years that they don't want to lose. And you know what? It's nearly certain they will. And even when, in their heart of hearts, they learn the truth, and they see the rebellion against God, and they see the wrong theology being taught in their congregation, they weigh whether it is better to turn away and follow the truth, or to stay and retain the friendships and rest upon the memories. You will not find Holy Scripture that gives us that kind of choice. Rather, we are invariably told in one form or another, come out of her, my people. Get out of Dodge fast. Don't look back. Don't be like God's wife who reluctantly escaped the judgment of Sodom, but then she looked back longingly only to be turned into a pillar of salt. You will make new relationships, I promise you. But regardless, as valuable as these earthly relationships can be, as warm and wonderful as many of the memories may be, they are brief as compared to eternity. Verse 14 then speaks of something that I think means so much more to God than we might ever imagine. It speaks of Shabbat. Obviously, since this passage is looking back to Mount Sinai, the context is God writing the Ten Commandments, or more accurately, the Ten Words, on two stone tablets with His own finger. And of course, to observe the Sabbath is traditionally called the Fourth Commandment. Now, something I have learned over the past 15 years as a Bible and Torah teacher and now as a pastor is this. Shabbat is the portal into living the redeemed life. I did not say observing Shabbat is the portal into salvation. For that is Christ and Christ alone. But once saved, how shall we live? The answer is the ways we're taught in the Torah. I have found through personal experience, through observation of other believers, that until a person finally realizes that Sabbath is the holy seventh day and that it is a day of rest and it's not any day we choose and especially that Shabbat has not been abolished right along with the rest of the law a critical doorway to spiritual maturity and into a fuller harmony with God remains closed but once we accept God's Sabbath it's like opening a door of a small dimly lit room that we thought was normal and all there is and what we should expect as a believer. And then we step into this enormous, gloriously lit, seemingly endless garden of color and life and goodness. And I do not mean this as hyperbole. Many years ago, it struck me that God didn't ordain the Sabbath at Mount Sinai. 
but rather Shabbat was essentially the final act of creation. It's almost as though the entire point of God's six days of creation was to arrive at the seventh day, Shabbat, rest. Genesis 2.1 Thus the heavens and the earth were finished along with everything in them. On the seventh day God was finished with His work which He had made so He rested on the seventh day from all His work which He would made. God blessed the seventh day and He separated it as holy because on that day God rested from all His work which He had created so that itself could, could produce. So Sabbath was not originally created as a law. It was created as a day of rest from creating. No more creating would occur after that day. But upon Mount Sinai, it became a law. But here's exactly what the law of Shabbat is. In Exodus 28, 20, verse 8, we read, Remember the day. Shabbat to set it apart for God I want you to think about this the commandment is to remember and the Hebrew word translated here and in every English version I checked as remember is zakar zakar means to call to mind to recall now, see, we typically tend to think of this commandment as an admonishment like, now remember to take out the trash. Remember to pick up a loaf of bread. In other words, we perceive this as meaning that there's something coming up that you're supposed to do and you shouldn't forget to do it. That's not what zakar means. Zakar means to take something that's been established and now to observe it. A better translation, as awkward as it might sound to our ears, would be recall the day, Shabbat, to set it apart for God. To recall is to pull up something from the past. So I wouldn't say recall to pick up a loaf of bread at the market. I mean, do you see the difference? I hope you do. Look at it this way. God made a series of ten laws, principles really. And only as regards Shabbat are we told to remember. So if it meant that we're not to forget to observe it, then why aren't we told not to forget to honor our parents? Remember to honor your parents. Not to forget to murder. Remember, don't murder. Why isn't every one of the ten commandments beginning with remember? That is because the meaning is to recall something that was established from the past and to take it up again and to keep doing it. And indeed, a Sabbath was established at creation, not at Mount Sinai. So when the Roman church in the 4th century AD declared the Sabbath, Sabbath abolished, and they said St. Paul said so, this doctrine didn't, didn't abolish a law of God. It abolished the entire point of creation. 
The Protestant Reformation brought 95% of the Roman church doctrines with it, including the supposed abolishment of the Sabbath. And I'm here to tell you that this doctrine that's not quite universal within the church is an error. And therefore it's an offense to God of the highest order. In fact, the seventh-day Shabbat established at the beginning a pattern and a shadow of what's going to happen at the end. The purpose of creation was to eventually arrive at Shabbat. Rest. Judaism especially says that this present earth will only last for 6,000 years and then all will change as we enter a seventh millennium. Now while I debate with the 6,000 years part, in my opinion, that as believers we are to see the era of the reign of Christ as the sixth millennium and not the seventh as it's often portrayed. We do not enter into our final rest our Shabbat when Yeshua returns and reigns for a thousand years. Rather, our Lord will indeed be on earth, but it's the same old earth that we've had since creation. In fact, it will for some time bear the terrible scars of the War of Armageddon and the world-altering wrath that God pours out from His 21 judgments. During the millennium of Christ, we must still work and toil, and death will still be part of the picture. In fact, the book of Ezekiel shows us that sacrificing will begin anew at the temple. It's only after those thousand years, after that sixth millennium, that the page is turned to a seventh, a new, permanent, eternal era of complete rest. That is the fulfillment of Shabbat. I want us to read together the entire 21st chapter of Revelation and the first five verses of chapter 22. And I submit to you that what we are reading is a description of the everlasting Shabbat. It was always God's plan to arrive at this point and it was vividly reflected in that pattern at creation. So open your Bibles to Revelation chapter 21. If you have a complete Jewish Bible, it's page 1553. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the old heaven and the old earth had passed away and the sea was no longer there. Also I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared like a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. I heard a loud voice from the throne say, See, God's Shekinah is with mankind. He will live with them. They will be His people and He Himself God with them will be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will no longer be any death. There will be no longer mourning, crying, pain because the old order has passed away. Then the one sitting on the throne said, Look, I'm making everything new. Also he said, Write, these words are true and trustworthy. 
And he said to me, It is done. I am the A and the Z, the beginning and the end. To anyone who is thirsty, I myself will give water free of charge from the fountain of life. He who wins the victory will receive these things. And I will be his God and he will be my son. That is for the cowardly, the untrustworthy, the vile, murderers, the sexually immoral, those involved with the occult and with drugs, idol worshippers and all liars. Now their destiny is the lake burning with fire and sulfur, the second death. One of the seven angels, having the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues, approached me and said, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And he carried me off in spirit to the top of a great high mountain and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. It had the Shekinah of God so that its brilliance was like that of a priceless jewel, like a crystal clear diamond. It had a great high wall with twelve gates. At the gates were twelve angels. Inscribed on the gates were the names of the twelve tribes of Israel. There were three gates to the east, three gates to the north, three gates to the south, three gates to the west. The wall of the city was built on twelve foundation stones. And on these were the twelve names of the twelve emissaries of the Lamb. The angel speaking with me had a gold measuring rod with which to measure the city, its gates, and its wall. The city is laid out in a square, its length equal to its width. With his rod he measured the city at 1,500 miles, with length, width, and height the same. He measured its wall at 216 feet by human standards of measurement, which the angel was using. The wall was made of diamond, the city of pure gold resembling pure glass. The foundations of the city wall were decorated with all kinds of precious stones. The first foundation stone was diamond, the second sapphire, the third chalcedony, the fourth emerald, the fifth sardonyx, the sixth carnelian, the seventh chrysocyte, the eighth beryl, the ninth topaz, the tenth chrysoprase, the eleventh turquoise, and the twelfth amethyst. The twelve gates were twelve pearls, with each gate made of a single pearl. The city's main street was pure gold, transparent as glass. I saw no temple in the city. For Adonai, God of heaven's armies, is its temple as is the Lamb. The city has no need for the sun or the moon to shine on it because God's Shekinah will give its light and its lamp is the Lamb. The nations will walk by its light. The kings of the earth will bring their splendor into it. Its gates will never close. They stay open all day because night will not exist there. And the honor and splendor of the nations will be brought to it. Nothing impure may enter it, nor anyone who does shameful things or lies. The only ones who may enter are those whose names are written in the Lamb's Book of Life. Chapter 22. Next the angel showed me the river of the water of life, sparkling like crystal flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb. Between the main street and the river was the tree of life, producing twelve kinds of fruit, a different kind every month. And the leaves of the tree were for healing the nations. No longer will there be any curses. The throne of God and the Lamb will be in the city and the servants will worship Him. They will see His face and His name will be on their foreheads. Night will no longer exist. 
So they will need neither the light of a lamp nor the light of the sun because Adonai God will shine upon them and they will reign as kings forever and ever. Gives me the chills. Here we have a new creation or better, re-creation. A new creation implies something from nothing which indeed is the nature of the creation of Genesis. However, in the case of Revelation, the heavens and the earth have been reformed, recreated. The new heaven and new earth with the old having completely passed away. It is permanent. There is no death, no more toil, no more work. There is no more Torah. There is no more barrier of separation between heaven and earth because sin is gone never to return. God is with us. We are with God. Not symbolically, but actually. Our universe of opposites has come to a close. There will only be day, never night. There will only be life and never death. There will only be good and never evil. There will only be Shabbat, rest, never toil. Because there are no days of the week to count. There are no more days. There are no more weeks. That is why our acceptance and understanding and observance of Shabbat are so critical for our understanding and our experience with God. It is also why He ordered a man executed for daring to defile the perfection of this day and its meaning by gathering sticks for a fire, doing normal everyday work. Nehemiah 9 Verses 13 and 14 is the briefest summation of what happened at Mount Sinai, but it's broken into two parts. The receiving of all of God's laws and commandments and separately the revealing of God's holy Shabbat. Clearly, the Shabbat is something set apart. It's unique. It's special. That's because it is to be everlasting. Even after the old order has passed away forever. We will continue with Nehemiah 9 next time.